Hello and welcome to 2019. I'm Kirsty Adams, host of the Logistics Podcast and editor of SHD Logistics Magazine. So this is Series 2, Episode 1. That's right, Series 2. They've let us do a second series. You seem to like it, so thank you. A couple of topics you can expect in 2019 are the new king of retail, which brands are reshaping things, and human plus robot, how does it work in non-virtual reality? This episode, we're talking about pills in the post and changing trends in the distribution of pharmaceutical products. We also interview the head of logistics at the House of Commons. First, I'd like to read a couple of emails from readers. I wrote a comment a few weeks back in our e-newsletter, which you can still sign up to. Please just visit the website. And I was asking, is it time to ditch the tie? You know, are we putting off young talent with our grey suits? Will they favour industries that wear unironed t-shirts and jeans? I received some really good email responses, so I thought we'd share a couple with you. And I've asked my colleagues to read them out. This is Joel. He's one of our sales managers and an outspoken Arsenal fan. Go ahead, Joel. Thanks, Kirsty. Um, dear Kirsty, interesting article about dress code, which is the norm for your newsletter. I'm old school, I guess, with 20 years military service, so some would say that that's to be expected. I recognise we need to loosen up on dress codes but at the right time and place. For interviews, it depends on the industry. If it's fashion, the candidate needs to show flair and creativity. The non-iron t-shirt, sorry, there's the door. You're just plain lazy, likely to cut corners, show little respect and are not prepared to make the effort. The open neck shirt can look really good. It does show confidence, but can only be worn with a really good jacket and never jeans. The same can be said for the dress code at work. If you operate off the company premises, you're a walking advert for the company. Dressing badly or shabbily indicates the company has poor standards and the product or service is likely to be poor also. Try and dress in a manner to match the ethos of the company you're visiting. I wear a tie 90% of the time, never jeans. I believe I'm showing respect to the person I'm visiting. I also believe that they expect that of me. Some would say it's a person, not what they are wearing, but it does matter. First impressions do count. I wonder what impression you have of me following this email. (laughs) That's a great email from Frank. Thank you, Frank. We have a great impression of you. Joe, what do you think? Do you agree with that? I do. Um, I'm sort of the older generation as well. I do think that you should wear a suit and tie. It just creates a better impression, I believe. This is Rihanna. She's my favourite member of the IMHX marketing team. Rhi, who's that from? This is from Gavin Parnell um, from the Supply Chain Consulting Group. And he says, Hi Kirsty, I am seeing fewer and fewer clients wearing ties and I never wear one now, even for sales meetings. It doesn't seem to be a problem. In fact, generally after an initial meeting to get the feel of the client, I am more often than not wearing a smart casual shirt or chinos for all project work. This is a big change over the last few years, but it's just reflective of how industry in general has shifted on this. He follows by saying, there are exceptions, and he would still recommend to young professionals that they put on small clothes for an interview, unless told otherwise. However, personally, he couldn't disqualify someone who turned up in smart casual. That's great. Thank you, Ree. Thank you, Gavin. Ree, do you agree? I think I do, actually. I don't think... 
business attire is completely necessary to do your job well. Well, Rhi, you're in your mid-twenties, so it's good I to mean, have, yeah, you know. Maybe. So but you are the young talent coming through, so actually that's a really good perspective to have. The unironed T-shirt, though, I don't think I could agree with. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's my so, thing. Okay, so I think we can probably all agree that an unironed T-shirt uh, to an interview or to work is probably not okay. Thank you, Jar. Thank you, Rhi. Thank you, Gavin and Frank. And now I'd like to pass over to David Tran for the news. It is the sound of alarm bells, and perhaps not Christmas bells, that will ring in the ears of the UK's more established retailers as they announce their financial results over the festive period. MS reported a 3.9% quarterly group revenue drop, with Christmas trading experiencing a decline as the high street continues to experience stiff challenges. But it wasn't all bad news from the high street. Lidl UK experienced a 33% in year-on-year sales for its premium product range, Deluxe, this Christmas, with customers switching £58 million of spend from Waitrose, M&S and the Big Four over to the discounter. The retailer also said it is expecting to open a new regional distribution centre in Doncaster in the early part of this year as part of an approximate £1.5 billion investment drive in 2019 and 2020 in the UK, while Tesco reported market outperformance. John Lewis, meanwhile, saw sales edged up 1.4% with Black Friday contributing to the biggest sales week. Waitrose saw sales revenue flatline with an increase of just 0.2%. The company announced that it may not pay its staff any bonuses for the first time since 1953. John Lewis chairman Charlie Mayfield spoke to ITN News earlier this month about the company's intentions in removing the company's bonus payments for this year. Every year there's the possibility of no bonus because the board makes the decision and it makes that decision in March so we're simply not at that point. What we've said is that we can afford to pay a bonus but what the board has to think about is is it prudent to do so you know, depending on the wider conditions that we're facing. The difference this year in March is there's an unusual level of uncertainty for obvious reasons. And so we're just flagging that you know, we've obviously got the board, as it always does, has to take into account the conditions that we find ourselves in in March. In other news, Siemens has opened a fully refurbished digital experience centre designed to practically illustrate how its industrial customers can successfully embark on a digital transformation journey. Located at the company's Manchester headquarters, demonstration centre showcases fully operational examples of transformative digital technologies which can enable industrial users to enhance productivity, support flexible manufacturing objectives, optimise performance and even open up new business models. Other open interface technologies such as augmented reality, 3D modelling and virtual reality which offers integration with Siemens's industrial applications, including Mindsphere, Siemens's open IoT operating system for the cloud, are on display. The CILT has announced that Paul St. House, Managing Director of Dawson's Group, Bus and Coach, will be its new president of the Institute for 2019. He will take up the one-year presidency with immediate effect. And finally, SHD Logistics has released a comprehensive list of the most influential logisticians in the UK. The Logistics 100, published in our January issue and the SHD website, is measured on a variety of criteria, centred by operational strength. New faces including Ocado's Automation and Robotics Head, and its Harvey, Nicholas Hawkins, Senior Director of Emir Distribution at Lego, and Becky Lombardo, Logistics Director of MatchesFashions.com 
were voted overwhelmingly by panel judges to join the listing. Now over to David Tame, our property editor, for all of the latest developments in the world of logistics property. Thank you, David. We start 2019 in a slightly peculiar position. The New Year's news for the economy isn't particularly good. Economic growth has not exactly stalled, but it's not sensational. And in the meanwhile, we've had a series of announcements which don't add to the bright sense of New Year prospects. Jaguar Land Rover and Ford have both decided they're going to shed jobs. And Debenhams shed one job in particular, its chairman who was booted out at a meeting of shareholders, a sign of how rough things are for retailers. Does any of this have consequences for the warehouse property market? I think it does. And the consequence is things are better than they seem. We've plenty of evidence that occupiers, landlords and developers are still feeling chirpy, despite a number of headwinds of which Brexit is not the least. I'd point particularly to the Midlands, where life is always busy in the shed scene, and at the moment it could scarcely be busier. IM Properties have announced that they're going to press ahead with the planning application for the first phase of the 160-acre Pedimore site. This is going to provide up to 3 million square feet of new warehousing to meet a badly undersupplied market in the immediate Birmingham neighbourhood. Simultaneously, Birmingham rents are rising. Now, this isn't necessarily a good idea if you pay them, but it does show that there is sufficient money and liquidity in the market to encourage developers and investors to provide more floor space. Surveyors KWB calculate that rents are now well uh, up to £7 a square foot for um, average and medium-sized units, perhaps as high as £8.50 around Solihull. Some landlords are taking advantage of the market today to push rent reviews up to some quite extraordinary levels. KWB report cases of rents being nudged up by as much as 42%. That is rather frightening, but it is a sign, to be positive about it, of an extremely healthy market. We can find that kind of evidence all over the country. Let's turn, for instance, to Yorkshire, where Wren Kitchens have signed up for 150,000 square feet of warehousing at the Humber Enterprise Park. That's one of the largest deals we've seen in the Humber region for a very long time. And around Manchester, we've got Stoford and their partners engaged in yet more development at the Airport City Scheme. Another 138,000 square foot unit is to be built on the site close to the World Freight Terminal. They have permission for up to a million square feet and by the look of it they're going to reach that target fairly rapidly. So there's gloom, it's January, it's not the best time of the year to think of investing If you're involved in manufacturing, it's not a very good time if you're in retail. It's certainly not a good time if you're in the British auto industry. But if you're in warehousing and warehouse property, there may be something to be said for it. And that concludes the property news for January 2019. Pills and medicine can be a matter of life and death. In 2017, the overall winner of the Logistics Awards was Pharmacy to You for its facility in Leeds. You might have seen their adverts, you may have 
received a letter from them, you might even already receive your pills in the post from them. Pharmacy to You was the first centralised pharmacy and it has revolutionised medicine supply in the UK. Its team and its facilities are capable of delivering prescription orders direct to patients and it's welcoming new patients at a rate of 32,000 per month. It's due to complete its new automated dispenser facility at Barden, Leicestershire, which will have the capacity to deliver up to 6.5 million items a month. That's twice as much as the lead site. Unfortunately, they weren't able to speak to me for the podcast, so you're stuck with my voice describing what they do. On my visit to Leeds back in 2017, I asked the Chief Pharmacy Officer and Founder, Daniel Lee, what will become of the High Street Pharmacy. Daniel told me he was asked this a lot. He said it has a key role to play in the local community, especially for acute and face-to-face services, where the unknowing unwell are seen. So, for example, people with obesity or type 2 diabetes. He also said it would be used for screening services. I was reminded of these comments over Christmas, especially the screening services, when I saw advertisements for Superdrug and its 10-minute sore throat consultation. The service is delivered by a pharmacist and includes an initial assessment, a questionnaire and a throat examination. The test includes a swab test if a bacterial infection is suspected. If it's positive, they'll be referred to a GP. If it's negative, they'll be recommended over-the-counter drugs. It's free and available at 200 superdrug stores. Other chemists are available. This demonstrates a clear steer away from GPs and reflects what Daniel described back to me in 2017. In addition to direct patient care, predictive analytics, personalised medicine and security are trends which were identified for the sector when I spoke to a couple of experts in this arena. Officer for AFC Associates. Hi, my name is Amy Shawman. I'm a CEO and founder of AFC Associates. When I was interviewing Amy and Henry, I realised that I know less about pharmaceutical logistics than I do about food logistics or fast fashion logistics, for example. I realised actually that I don't even remember the last time I took prescription medicine. I mentioned the pharmacy to you model to Henry and Amy. And I also ask about other trends that they're aware of. I think, again, that model is changing. We're certainly beginning to see, from a technological perspective, the drive towards personalised medicine. So that's the idea that a manufacturer will develop a product or have a range of products that are unique to you. And that ultimately means that, from a distribution perspective, it makes sense that the shipment arrives at your doorstep directly from the manufacturer. In an industry perspective and a supply chain point of view, the pharmaceutical industry has been relatively slow in adopting to new supply chain models. So this idea of direct-to-pharmacy or direct-to-patient has probably only been in operation realistically for the last five or six years. Pfizer was the first pharmaceutical manufacturers to push that model, as in, I will now get my product directly to the patient or directly to their doorstep and bypass the, the wholesale, the traditional wholesale network that was in operations. We certainly hear a lot of noise about Amazon and their potential move into online pharmacy, the idea that 
we're used to buying anything on Amazon, why would we not be able to be able to begin to buy our, our medication or medicines from Amazon and get that delivered to our door? Director door, director patient, it feels like it's only just begun. Amy looks ahead at how consumers will be tracking their own health as well as their parcels. And I think also if we think about our Alexa device and give them a, a, a tracking number for DHL, which then it tells us where the status of the pack is, I think that that's going to also be reflected in the direct-to-patient healthcare. We're seeing that the devices, that the ability to have Bluetooth and down to pack level visibility in terms of temperature and uh, GPS location is becoming uh, more of a trend. And because of, like all things, the price point being driven down, and we can actually then monitor and track our own medicines that are being delivered to us. The future of wearable medical devices, so we know that the FDA in America has approved uh, a certain make watch um, as, a, as a medical device. And I think that going forward into the next 20 years, we'll see a lot more of that where we will actually be able to provide information about our own blood pressure to a source that will then analyse and create a certain type of medicines that's at the right level for us as individuals. And I think that that's going to be exciting for the transport industry because what it's going to mean is that we will have a lot smaller shipments that are going out to people but will need to be managed under good distribution practices because they are going to be used by a patient. A bigger shipment then at that point broken down to the individual patient. So that might be a kind of a next step in terms of good distribution practice last mile, which is going to be a challenge for the industry if we think of the average van that's delivering a variety of different products um, and also you know, in terms of things like supply chain security as well, making sure that product's not tampered with, um, that it's also not stolen. Whether it's on the way to a person, a chemist or a warehouse, security, visibility and quality control need to be at the top of the agenda. Predictive analytics is really helping with that. It's about providing data on a particular shipment, whether it's on the move or whether it's at rest. So the predictive analytics that we're talking about are, as Amy mentioned, temperature. So the temperature of the particular product whilst it's at rest in a warehouse environment. And then whilst it's in transit, it's doing exactly the same thing. Because pharmaceutical products are temperature sensitive, it is critically important that they are kept within the prescribed and defined temperature ranges. The other element of analytics that we're talking about are from a GPS perspective. So where is my shipment? If it is in the warehouse, whereabouts in the warehouse is my shipment? If it's in transit, where in the world is that particular package? So it's about providing analytics, in our opinion, at those two different levels, and then ultimately allowing operations people to, to manage and mitigate the risk. Thank you, Henry. Amy, what do you think? Particularly with sort of very temperature-sensitive pharmaceutical products, and this is extended to APIs, so the raw ingredients that are used to make these types of products. It's about having an audit trail so that you can demonstrate that product has been kept and maintained at a certain temperature. Because if the products go outside of those temperatures, they can 
deteriorate and they may not be as effective. So we're all in a situation where we're consuming and taking medicinal products. We want them to do what they say they're going to do. And in some cases, that can be a life or death situation. And remember, within a, a, an average supply chain, there are many different stakeholders uh, that are passing a product from be a trucking company collecting from a warehouse in the UK, delivering it to a ground handling agent that's passing it over to an airline or in an ocean situation. When something does go outside the term range, there's been historically this sort of blame culture of, well, it must have happened there, or they look at the times and the dates, and they then try to kind of shove the responsibility in terms of, well, I'm sure it happened when it was on air side or whatever that is. And I think that what the industry is taking a lot more responsibility for now and, and is really positive step is saying that through using technology, through having data loggers that are, are, are working in real time and having the, the correct software applications that can actually send alerts. So I could be product manager of shipments that are going out or I might be a 3PL. If I know that in Frankfurt my product has gone outside of temperature that moment, I can then alert somebody to go in to see what the issue is and hopefully prevent spoilage and damage of that product or it going outside of the temperature range there and then, rather than waiting till it got to destination to download the temperature and then potentially have a lost or spoiled shipment. So from a financial point of view, that's obviously within better managed and highly visible supply chain and for it to be proactive is going to be in, in everyone's interest particularly insurance companies who are insuring these types of shipments through giving evidence of mitigating, reducing the risk and showing that you have a proactive supply chain it can result also in lower insurance premiums, which is a big part of a cost for a pharmaceutical company. So all of the time it's looking at sort of how we can better manage and, and prevent things happening within the supply chain. I think that trend is kind of really set to continue and as we go forward it will be about this data lake we're creating of having all of this data, how we're using it and which software applications are good and out there that can actually then collate all of the data and make it useful for improving the type of shipments that we have, the partners that we work with in terms of uh, basic things like auditing our supply chain. We need to audit the supply chain to know that the partners that we're working with are working to good distribution standards, but also then through having those kind of analytics and that data on a continual basis, we're actually auditing that on a per shipment basis to make sure what we've said in the standard operation procedure should happen is happening every single time. And when it's not happening, there needs to be a, a CAPA corrective action and preventative action developed so that we can then prevent that happening in the future. So I guess there's a huge drive for quality, which is summarized what we're talking about, that sort of quality push, making sure that we're extending the, the levels that pharmaceutical industry and the healthcare industry are working to within their manufacturing sites out into the supply chain and that all of the partners, whether that's a trucking company that's been outsourced to the job or whether it's a, a warehouse and making sure that they have their, all of their outsourced suppliers are working to these standards. And that can go all the way down to a cleaning company that they're working with, making sure that they're using the correct type of cleaning fluids that are not going to have any adverse effect on the external packaging of a pharmaceutical product that could lead to kind of contamination in terms of smell, it could be down to pest control as well. So 
it's about extending really those quality practices to everyone that's involved in the supply chain from the warehouse all of the way through the various different transport modes to the end. It's clear that with significant growth in the pharmaceutical sector, due to trends such as direct-to-patient, which is set to continue, supply chains are reaching, or aiming to reach, new levels of responsibility. A reliable order of temperature and stock location is more important than ever. It seems to me that patients will be able to, or at some point be able to, act as watchdogs. Tracking their own medicine or products on wearable devices. Who knows how deep their scrutiny will be? This suggests another steer away from GPs, but this time not in the direction of your local pharmacy, as a pharmacy to you model has enabled, but to the patient, which is all of us. So, here's to good health, self-care and reliable audits. Happy New Year, like the chimes of Big Ben, or should I say the chimes of the Elizabeth Tower, which is its real name. That's according to Wesley Ovash, who's head of logistics at the House of Commons. If you watched the New Year countdown this year, you may have spotted that Big Ben is encased in scaffolding. Big Ben is Wesley's remit, as was moving that scaffolding around as part of a major refurbishment project, which was no mean feat. I interviewed Wesley just before Christmas, I was keen to find out what it was like working on the estate and how his challenges compared to yours. There's the palace that everyone's familiar with, which everyone sees from television and stuff like that. But we've got probably a dozen or so buildings that make up the parliamentary estate. It's a significant area that we service and manage. I guess it's the complexities around that. Um, we've got the palace, which we've got sort of 11th century parts of there, the original through to Portcullis House, where we come from earlier, which is from the 1990s. Um, so it's that kind of range of different buildings to, to manage and service and, and the vast array of different types of services that are run out of the buildings as well. Can you name the most challenging part of your job? I think it's managing around time and space, I think. Parliament is here for a reason. Mm-hmm. It's not here to be a building site, it's here to be seat democracy and where members of both houses conduct their work. So we have to work around that, which is challenging at certain times. Obviously it's, it's a heightened time of political uncertainty at the moment with Brexit and stuff like that. So it's, it's you know, there's high tensions around, there's high activity from the house's point of view, how it operates, aside from the fact that we're trying to operate and run the place and we've got a number of building projects that are going on as well. So there are all those departments and areas competing for space and time, which is a real challenge. And how is it having members of parliament on the site that you're working? How does that change how you work? I think personally that they're particularly understanding actually with the amount of uh, disruption that goes on. They're here for a reason, so it's not necessarily the members themselves, it's the nature of work they have to do, and we have to recognise that. But at the same token, there's also the other stuff that goes on around that as well, and it is that balance that we have to try and, um, we try and find, which is tricky. What kind of storage space do you have here? Limited. <laughs> Hardly any. <laughs> yeah, sure. Again, because of a lot of the parts, the estate are so old, so it wasn't designed for modern working. 
So space is absolutely of a premium for us, just as for business as usual. And I say we're going through a period of significant uh, disruption with building works prior to the restoration renewal of the palace, which is due in the mid-2020s. So there's that work that's been done prior to that. So it's, it's competing for space and there's very little space to compete for. And what kind of products are you storing here? Storing, not a lot. We do have some external storage, but you can imagine that the facilities that we have here, we have office furniture, we have catering, we've got a number of restaurants, we have vote papers, we have maintenance, you name it. It's like a small village, really, I think. The parliamentary estate, that's how a lot of us refer to it as, and it's managing the sort of things you would expect to see in a, in a village, really. Yeah. Wesley told me about his future plans for consolidation, about using the river and about moving congestion to outside of London. Consolidation is really the way forward um, because there just isn't the space in London itself. We need to try and move the traffic away as much as possible to, you know, to the outskirts of London. I know that like, the city are looking to do things like that and mm. around London Bridge because you just have to move that effort. But it's really kind of looking at that consolidation part, I think, which is key for, for London really as a whole. And I know that's what the Mayor's office um, is looking at as well. Okay. Would you um, be involved in those discussions? So having been there and done it for a number of years, um, we've learned, you know, some of the pitfalls from that and some, you know, lessons learned from it. So we'd like to think we could, you know, provide some uh, lessons learned for those that are looking to do it. How do you think we could you could consolidate? We have hundreds of thousands of suppliers that provide goods and services to the estate. It's yeah. moving that congestion outside to where it's more manageable. And the same with construction as well. You can manage it better, our time and space, because it's so limited. It's, mm. It'd be very difficult to do it here in mm. central London. Can you see your products and goods coming on bike? I think we need to look to the future, really, you know, really quite far into the future. So the restoration and renewal of the palace, yeah. it's hard it is to try and get your head around it. We're looking at 50 to 100 years in the future, because it's our one chance to get it right for a number of generations. So you need to take away from what we're doing now and, and try to think of what it might be like, not just yeah. in five or ten years' time, but yeah. a, a long, long way down the line, automation, robotics, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. We have to do that. don't want to be carrying on, not bad practice, but something that we just, we've had to do for the last hundred years, for instance, and continue to do that for another. Um, it's our chance to try and be a bit more sort of trailblazing. That's interesting because we talk in the industry all the time about what the future will look like, what yeah. will warehouses look like, what will cities look like. Mm -hmm. but there's no real urgency for any of these operators to create that future, whereas there is for you. So what does it look like? We are trying to somewhat get our head around it. Different modes of transport, different ways of getting transport around London. There's a river that's used to an extent. Could that be used more? We want to try and keep the roads as clear as possible. Different types of vehicles to be used. But what can we do to try and... Uh, get as much out of the capacity of the vehicles that we've got, but trying to keep down the congestion and stuff like that. Obviously, we could do some things, but we've relied on a whole host of other areas doing the same. And I do think there's that kind of drive, at least in London, with, with it being so congested, that I think it has to be done, otherwise it's just not going to work. The new builds that are coming up in the city, part of the philosophy around those is looking at, so that the consolidation aside from there, because if you don't do it, it just wouldn't work. So any companies that will go into some of these new high-rises, one of the provisos in there is you have your goods consolidated elsewhere and brought in so that you're not bringing London to a standstill really. Do you use much automation within the estate? Not on the estate. I mean there's certainly scope for that in the future. Um, I think there will have to be really. Look at subterranean routes to be used, you know, trying to keep away, you know, keep the flow of the buildings working for staff that work here and keep the sort of nuts and bolts of it away, either subterranean or, or above, you know, that kind of stuff. We are obviously quite restricted because the buildings are listed or in the palace's case, it's you know, World Heritage Site. So 
it's not like it would be in an Amazon warehouse or something like that where you've got a bit more free reign to make changes, but we are trying to do what we possibly can do, or at least you know, explore it uh, where we can. Whilst it's a bigger state, there's not a lot of room to move around, so uh, it does make it quite difficult. We always talk about the flow of goods, but you're talking about the flow of goods and people and votes. And... There's areas contested for space across the estate. Like I say, we've got school children coming in to visit, we've got tourists coming in to visit, we've got people coming in just to visit us. Um, we've got members of both houses and their staff and contractors all competing for the same space in some areas. And uh, it's managing the flow of people and things, um, which mm. is a real challenge. It sounds like there's a lot of challenges, but yes. it's an interesting place to be. I mean, some of the projects that are being undertaken at the moment, once in a lifetime projects. So it's, I see myself quite fortunate to be in the position where, certainly with the palace that's been, that will be restored and, mm-hmm. and renovated, to be in a position to be here before it starts, during the works and then, and then seeing the end product as well. Mm. I think that's, that is a once in a lifetime, you know, multiple generation to do that. We've got the Elizabeth Tower project that's going on, or Big Ben, as people would refer to it as, as well, which is significant, and to be here for that as well. So how does um, the estate change in the lead up to Christmas if you've got giant Christmas trees coming in? We've got the giant Christmas tree that comes in to New Palace Yard, mm-hmm. uh, and we've got cranes for that, and you mm-hmm. know, enormous 90-ton cranes that, that bring that in. It's, it's huge. Okay. Obviously the challenge of getting that thing in, and other Christmas trees that will go into Westminster Hall, stuff yeah. like that. That's obviously a challenge. And going back to the Elizabeth Tower project as well, mm. I mean, that's that's a huge undertaking uh, for anyone that sees it from the street now, that the, the whole of the tower is encased in scaffolding, which is pretty much a structure in itself. You know, erecting that was, uh, you know, a feat of engineering, really. And obviously getting the stuff in to central London is no mean task at all, no mean feat. So the sheer scale of the stuff that was coming in, although it does seem dwarfed when it's sitting on Westminster Bridge mm. um, underneath the Elizabeth Tower. It was, it was quite a significant piece of work that's being done there. Because it's much bigger, obviously now we're talking about it, I realise how much bigger it is yeah, than I thought. Yeah, so you've got, the, you've got the palace, which is the, the main part, let's say, people would be familiar with, which is actually quite large. So you've got the other parts of the, you know, we've got a southern estate, which is the palace and the northern estate that we're in now, which consists of, you know, half a dozen or so buildings. So it's, it's, it's a, it takes up quite a, a fair footprint of Westminster. I like to be involved in things from the start as well. So previous roles, I say, when I used to work uh, in industry, I'd much prefer to start on a contract in its infancy and work you know, from cradle to grave almost, rather than come in on something that was already established. It's, it's a bit boring if you do that. <laughs> I'd much rather be involved at the start. And you, you, know, you, you really know it back to front then as well, which I think really, really helps. Um, so that's my personal preference. Okay. What's unusual for our readers is that you're here amongst all these people that we see yeah. on the TV all the time. Yeah. Is there anything you can share, like so-and-so always says hello, you know, any positives that, or if you saw any arguments? Yeah, well, I, I personally have got quite a positive spin or, or view of, of, yeah. of here. I mean, I'm conscious that members get a hard time in the press, uh, and the place itself sometimes gets, well, a lot of times gets a hard, a hard time in the press, mm-hmm. which, you know, fair enough, that's the press, whatever. Me personally, I find it a really good place to work. Um, it's, it's, it's not easy, but then there's a lot of places that aren't easy. There'll be, you know, back in my old life, it wasn't easy. Um, I, I genuinely find it, say, quite a, a good place to work, uh, my own personal opinion of it. Um, and I think most of the folks that work around here, whether they be members or lords or people that work in logistics or maintenance, we're all here for different reasons. But, well, I say different reasons, we're all here for the same reason ultimately. And most people get that, so they do work well together. You know, it's not perfect, nowhere is, but it's given, say, the complexities here, it, it does work relatively well, I think. I guess there's quite a few protests of been outside. Yes. I get the bus round here, actually. Yes. So I, the other day I was like, oh, I better go off. 
yeah. and that must impact on your logistics it, operation. Absolutely does. So there's a number of demonstrations that we have for different reasons mm-hmm. um, throughout the year. It's obviously, as I mentioned earlier, it's quite a, a highly politically sort of charged environment we've got at the moment with Brexit for both sides. Um, there'll be road closures uh, put in place, planned or at last minute for, for the various reasons. It, it is a challenge, but you kind of get used to it after a while and it just comes into part of your planning that you would do for any sort of, you know, so it's a peak period for us, <laughs> I guess. Absolutely. It's a way Absolutely, of, uh, yeah. you know, like you would do at Christmas yeah, or yeah. Black Friday, somewhere yeah. else, our peak period is when there's it's unpredictable. disruption. Yeah. yeah, some of it can be particularly unpredictable. Yeah. But it's just, it's just one of the challenges that you have to, yeah. to manage really and work is, with. Could you tell me maybe a little bit more about things that are just in time for you here? You know, more operations are have a just-in-time process in place, especially automotive. Well, they have always have, but automotive absolutely have done. So I mean, that's been the case for years and years. I say I was a supplier into that industry probably twenty, yeah, twenty years ago. I think it was. Um, so I've been familiar with that, and a lot of the um, industry nowadays is that's just how we work, and people want things yesterday, don't they? You know, that's how retail are having to adapt with same-day deliveries and all sorts of things, and to here. I mean, I say that the key parts for us is, is the business of the house. That's absolutely critical. It's crucial. So we have to be able to adapt to that and, and work like that. And some of the projects as well. I say again, a lot of it's driven by space, to be, to be quite honest, uh, because we don't have any. Uh, we're having to work hand to mouth sort of thing. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Any other comments that you think that my readers would enjoy hearing? The main one for me, I say it's not, it's not particularly interesting, but I think it's, it's just understanding the, the scope and the scale of the place. That's, that's one of the key things. That's one of the things that got me when I first started here, say eight years ago, whatever it was, just over. It's, and, and for people that come along here, it's, it's understanding that there's more to the whole the place than just what you see on the television. For a number of reasons, I think not for what we do, for how if make the maintenance team do an amazing job here, you know, keeping the place ticking and running out. That's, I mean, that's just in time. You know, you, we've got things that are a thousand years old, you know, uh, and they've got to try and maintain that. Um, so it's... It kind of all hands to the pump to try and get this place going, and it, and it is a slog at times. And I'm saying because it's such a large, vast estate that we've got, um, it's, uh, I guess it's trying to get that into context, which you wouldn't necessarily always see if you're just reading the tourist book or, or watching it on the television or something like that. After our chat, we went for a walk around the estate so I could see some of the challenges that Wesley faces for myself. We got talking about the movement of MPs and how logistics could impact on critical votes. As you can imagine, there's a lot of voting going on at the moment for some really, really quite important things. And the government having such a small majority, or no majority really, you know, reliant on the DUP, one single vote could actually really make a difference. Members have only got eight minutes to get from their office, or wherever they are, to the chamber, once the division bell goes. So as crazy as it sounds, it's absolutely crucial that we keep the division routes clear. So whilst we always kind of keep warehouses clean and tidy and, you know, for health and safety reasons, if we were to have a pallet of stationery or something in the way and a member can't get to vote, we could, you know, bring Brexit to a grinding halt or something <laughs> as crazy as that. So, so it, it sounds like one of the most simple things, but it's absolutely crucial that those division routes are kept clear. And uh, it's something that perhaps isn't so obvious when you first, well, certainly when I first started here, but you soon become apparent how important it is. It's just something that we need to always bear in mind. Who's the fastest MP? Some of them have got a good sprint on them, I tell you that. Mr Miliband, when he was here, he was pretty uh, nippy. And I think Mr Corbyn, he gets across here pretty quick as well. So there you have it. Mr Corbyn is one of our nippiest MPs. Good logistics practice is keeping the wheels of Brexit in motion. And dealing with storage in buildings that date back to the 11th century is as difficult as it sounds. What a great perspective from logistician Wesley Ovash.
this week's guests, Amy, Henry and Wesley. And thank you for listening. The plan to turn our readers into listeners and our listeners into readers is on track. Please do tell your colleagues to download the podcast. Word of mouth is really powerful and the more people listen, the more of these we're allowed to do. Remember, you can sign up to the newsletter and to the magazine at shdlogistics.com. Finally, do you want to be on the podcast? Can you help us tell a good story? The next episode is The New King of Retail, Which Brands Are Reshaping Things? If you claim that crown, please email kirsty.adams at informer.com. Please email any other comments you might have. We'd love to read them out. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.